This is American Origin Stories. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. So this week's episode is about two topics that are intimately connected. The first, why, other than a few notable exceptions, America repeatedly chooses such terrible leaders, mediocre at best, and two, America's identity, so often in crisis, purposefully vague, offensive in the depths of its pandering without actually ever saying anything at all. So what is this place? What does it exemplify or actually aspire to? If we don't have a purpose, there's no intention, no mission statement, how can we possibly have a clear identity? We need something real that rallies us all together, that's more than just a set of colors or stripes like a sports uniform. We need to symbolize, we need a symbol that actually means something, a beacon, a guiding light a path out of darkness. So this story is actually going to start in darkness. I want to address some of America's more problematic symbols painfully, but hopefully in a way that evokes understanding about why, why they're painful, so we can have more insight into one another and our collective experience. And then let's talk about a symbol that doesn't need to give us pain. It's a difficult history, but it's one whose direction and mission includes all of us. It's often said these days that America is in the midst of an identity crisis. And in fact, there is an entire political movement committed to this expression, real Americans, as if those who disagree with that movement, which happen to be a popular majority of Americans, aren't real Americans. What does it even mean, real Americans? As it turns out, this identity crisis goes back to the very beginning. James Baldwin, one of America's greatest authors, once said, there are no American people. Not yet. So I want to read from one of his essays, which Baldwin published in 1984. And it's as relevant now as then. He writes, quote, The crisis of leadership in the white community is remarkable and terrifying 
because there is, in fact, no white community. Now, this may seem an enormous statement, and it is. I'm willing to be challenged. I'm also willing to attempt to spell it out. My frame of reference is, of course, America, or that portion of the North American continent that calls itself America. And this means I am speaking, essentially, of the European vision of the world, or more precisely, perhaps, the European vision of the universe. It is a vision as remarkable for what it pretends to include as for what it remorselessly diminishes, demolishes, or leaves totally out of account. There is, for example, at least in principle, an Irish community, here, there, anywhere, or more precisely, Belfast, Dublin, and Boston. There's a German community, both sides of Berlin, Bavaria, and Yorkville. There's an Italian community, Rome, Naples, the Bank of the Holy Ghost, and Mulberry Street. And there's a Jewish community, stretching from Jerusalem to California to New York. There are English communities, there are French communities, there are Swiss consortiums, there are Poles in Warsaw and in Chicago. He goes on. But this does not describe a community. It bears terrifying witness to what happened to everyone who got here and paid the price of the ticket. The price was to become white. No one was white before he or she came to America. It took generations and a vast amount of coercion before this became a white country. And then later he goes on, he says, quote, America became white. The people who, as they claim, settled the country became white because of the necessity of the denying the black presence and justifying the black subjugation. No community can be based on such a principle, or in other words, no community can be established on so genocidal a lie. Then later he goes on again, quote, This moral erosion has made it quite impossible for those who think of themselves as white in this country to have any moral authority at all, privately or publicly. The multitudinous bulk of them sit, stunned, before their TV sets, swallowing garbage that they know to be garbage, and, in a profound and unconscious effort to justify this torpor, that disguises a profound and bitter panic, pay a vast amount of attention to athletics, even though they know that the football player, the son of the republic, their sons, is merely another aspect of the money-making scheme. They are either relieved or embittered by the presence of the black boy on the team. I do not know if they remember how long and hard they fought to keep him off it. I know that they do not dare have any notion of the price black people mothers and fathers, paid and pay. They do not want to know the meaning or face the shame of what they compelled as the necessity of being white. There has never been a labor movement in this country, the proof being the absence of a black presence in the so-called father-to-son unions. There are perhaps some, and he says a word here that I don't say, for black people in the window, but blacks have no power in the labor unions. They have no power in the labor unions. Just so does the white community, as a means of keeping itself white, elect, as they imagine, their political representatives. No nation in the world, including England, is represented by so stunning a pantheon of the relentlessly mediocre. I will not name names, I will leave that to you. But this cowardice, this necessity of justifying a totally false identity, and of justifying what must be called a genocidal history, 
has placed everyone now living into the hands of the most ignorant and powerful people the world has ever seen. And how did they get that way? By deciding they were white, he goes on. And in this debasement and definition of black people, they debased and defamed themselves and have brought humanity to the edge of oblivion because they think they are white. Because they think they are white, they do not dare confront the ravage and the lie of their history. Because they think they are white, they cannot allow themselves to be tormented by the suspicion that all men are brothers. Because they think they are white, they are looking for, or bombing into existence, stable populations, cheerful natives, and cheap labor. Because they think they are white, he goes on, however vociferous, meaning insistently they may be, and however multitudinous, they are as speechless as Lot's wife, looking backward, changed into a pillar of salt. And here Baldwin's referring to the biblical character of Lot's wife. who's a disobedient woman who was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back to see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as she and her family were fleeing. And her story is seen as a warning of what happens to those who would choose a materialistic life over human values. So Baldwin continues, However, white, being absolutely a moral choice, for there are no white people, the crisis of leadership for those of us whose identity has been forged or branded as black is nothing new. We who were not black before we got here either and were defined as black by the slave trade have paid for the crisis of leadership in the white community for a very long time and have resoundingly, even when we face the worst about ourselves, survived and triumphed over it. If we had not survived and triumphed, there would not be a black American alive. And the fact that we are still here, even in suffering, darkness, danger, endlessly defined by those who do not dare define or even confront themselves, is the key to the crisis in white leadership. The past informs us of various kinds of people, criminals, adventurers, and saints, to say nothing, of course, of popes. But it is the black condition, and only that, which informs us concerning white people. It is a terrible paradox, but those who believed that they could control and define black people divested themselves of the power to control and define themselves. End quote on Baldwin's essay, which is called On Being White and Other Lies. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So it would simply be stating facts to say that the majority of whites in America currently vote for the conservative party, whose strongest footholds are in the southern bloc of former slave states 
who pushed those very identities of whiteness on the country in the first place, when it was still in its infant colonial state. As a business venture called the Colony of Jamestown in Virginia, which to be precise is where race-based slave laws were first written in 1619, written to prevent any further united labor class uprisings. And in that moment, an identity of whiteness was born as a class of human being that existed solely in contrast to blackness. And the conservative party of the United States embraces, as it always has, the central issue of culture wars, that over all else. And their central proposition, always, is that the culture they represent is the real America. Sometimes they define it as Christian values, although not all Christians agree. And their symbol is and has been the flag and an anthem, mired in a history defined by exclusion. The third stanza of the lyrics of the Star-Spangled Banner read as follows, quote, No refuge could save the hireling and the slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave, end quote. That's our national anthem. That was written during the Second War with Britain. This was the War of 1812. It was an expansionist war waged by the president at the time, the infamous Southern slaver James Madison, who wanted to invade Canada and take more land. Now, Madison is also famous for being one of the founding fathers, whose vision of our new Republican government, he said, should be, quote, constituted as to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority, end quote, meaning literally to protect the rich from the poor. The British military, who were under attack, had formed a regiment of former American slaves that the British had inspired to escape and then trained and armed. These former slaves were called the Colonial Marines, and they were part of the British forces who marched all the way into Washington, D.C., took the White House, and lit it on fire. In fact, some of them raided the kitchen and ate the leftover food. The Americans finally won a truce with Britain by a hair, but not after thousands of American soldiers were killed, along with many more thousands of natives and another massive land grab, which was part of the same expansionist dream of the slavers. This song, which became our anthem, was part of a national propaganda effort to rehabilitate that very unpopular war, which we now call by the tedious name, the War of 1812. And that line, quote, no refuge could save the hireling and slave, is a nasty bit of class and race warfare, sung shamelessly and proudly at the time, that 200 years later, many Americans, particularly whites, would want to conserve the values of that time, for a lot of people, is seen as an affront, especially when it's used as a cudgel, like the American flag, which is problematic in that it purposely withheld from the entire society of Americans certain freedoms all the way until the late 1960s, when the Voting Rights Act was finally passed, protecting voting rights for black Americans and everyone else who didn't pass for white. So while for some, Kneeling before the flag or sitting and so forth is a high crime because it offends those who identify themselves with a particularly afforded freedom that that flag represents. To others, the act of saluting or standing before the flag 
is a kind of performative act of virtue signaling. It signals the virtues of freedom for whites, as evidenced by a country which is still segregated nearly the same way as we were in 1776, culturally segregated along the same geographic lines, more or less, as we were from the founding and through the Civil War, where you have, on the one hand, conservative white people in the southern blocks and in rural and suburban areas, and then more diverse populations, including progressive whites in America's major cities and on its coasts. And that's the divide. We're also still segregated in terms of housing, schools, jobs, wages, banking, wealth, and of course, the application of the criminal justice system. All of these major functions of society disproportionately disenfranchise Black Americans, Native Americans, and every American who's lived here for generations and isn't white. And every time an effort is made to desegregate, that's met with often violent resentment. The major historical ones being a civil war, which erupted less than 85 years after the founding of the so-called United States. And then 100 years later, a string of political assassinations of all our human rights leaders and their supporters, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Kennedy. And then, of course, the backlash against Barack Obama's presidency. The backlash, particularly among white conservatives, against essentially challenging their identity of the country to one that extends freedoms to all Americans. Oftentimes, because history is so often used as a weapon for and against different versions of America's identity, this leaves a lot of people feeling like there's nowhere to turn in our history. But there is somewhere to turn. There is another legacy. And it's ever-evolving. It's dynamic. And its deep and complex roots connect us all together in a collective, intersecting tradition which makes sense and can easily center around an American symbol that for many of us reflects not a narrow version of America, but a very wide one. And that's the story of the Statue of Liberty. And that's the topic of next week's American Origin Stories. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.